This is episode 215 of IDRA Class Notes. A lot of my reservations about dipping into this work was because I knew that voices like mine are definitely stamped out in the legislative space. And so it did intimidate me knowing that I would have to meet and talk with legislators who often shy away from hearing from our communities because they don't know how to respond. And I think that was something that I had to overcome throughout the fellowship, but this made the work that much more sustaining because I knew that this was bigger than myself and I needed to get over that. Hello, welcome to episode two of four of our special series featuring reflections from the inaugural cohort of IDRA Education Policy Fellows. During this podcast series, you'll hear from our fellows, Dr. Altheria Caldera, Cristina Quintanilla Munoz, Araceli Garcia, and Thomas Marshall. Please check out their bios and work using the link in this podcast. The fellows will share their reflections about their nine-month fellowship experience, including what they learned about state-level education policymaking in Texas, what it's like to be an advocate of color fighting for students of color in this state, the good, bad, and ugly of the 87th Texas Legislative Sessions, and their thoughts on the future of advocacy. My name is Morgan Craven. I'm the National Director of Policy, Advocacy, and Community Engagement at IDRA, and I'm so excited to host this podcast series. Welcome to episode two, fellows. Are we ready to start? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) We're ready. We're ready. Cool. Since Altheria, I heard your voice last, you're going to kick us off. Topic two, the topic of this episode, being an advocate of color and thinking about the communities that we seek to amplify. So the first question I have for you is, how have your particular cultural, ethnic, racial identities shaped your advocacy experience during the fellowship? And what sorts of benefits and challenges did you recognize and experience as an advocate of color doing this work in Texas? I think this is probably my favorite question out of everything you've asked us so far. And it's because um, for me, this work is deeply personal. And I think that's also why it is so emotionally demanding as well, because it is impossible to separate it from my identities and the identities in my family. As I worked on issues related to higher education access and preparation, but I also worked across other issues as well. So one of those issues was the bill that would prohibit teachers, educators, schools from discriminating against Black students who wear natural hairstyles. That one was very personal for me as a Black woman who wears her hair in a natural hairstyle, and I'm very invested in that. So that was an easy connection for me to make, but also one that was really personal for me and disappointing when the bill did not pass. Another area that I worked on that's not me personally, but I'm a part of an immigrant family. My husband is an immigrant to this country and for several years was an undocumented immigrant to this country. So immigration issues matter to me. I want students who are part of immigrant family and who are immigrants themselves to receive equity in education. So when there's a bill, the bill that was proposed that would deny students who are undocumented the chance to um, claim residency status and therefore get state financial aid, 
that's disturbing for me. Uh, my identity informed every aspect of the work that I did. When we're talking about funding for post-secondary education, I'm a first-generation college student. I'm from a low-income family, so I'm not just a person of color. I'm a person of color who grew up really poor. So I'm concerned about that being an equity issue, the skyrocketing tuition, whereas financial aid isn't as available as we need it to be. So for me, this was highly personal. I was deeply invested. And in some ways that made the work easy because it is something I care about so much. But at the same time, it made it really, really personally demanding. Thank you so much for that. And and you're hitting on, you know, part of why we envisioned the program is that we want those personal experiences and identities coupled with community engagement and research around issues to really drive policy. And we have policymakers who are not connected to communities or do not have those diverse identities. It really makes for dangerous policymaking. Christina, I'm going to turn to you with the same question about your different identities and how they shaped your advocacy experience, both benefits and challenges to that. Definitely. And I I think what Altheria is saying about it was something that was pivotal to her work. It was like the crux of what our work was is like, we are doing these things on behalf of our communities that we are from. So as a Latina woman who's like been in this space of STEM, for example, I have always been aware and I alert to my identity as someone who just graduated from a master's program in in statistics and research methods, I was literally the only Latina there, the only Latina woman in that program, a cohort of 20 plus students. And, you know, to constantly be aware of that, knowing that our community members need this kind of representation in this advocacy space is personal to my work and will continue to be. I would say it made me a little intimidated at the beginning of a lot of my reservations about dipping into this work was because I knew that voices like mine are definitely stamped out in the legislative space. Uh, And so it did intimidate me knowing that I would have to meet and talk with legislators who don't look like me, who often shy away from hearing from our communities because they don't know how to respond or they're not well equipped to understand our, our issues. That was intimidating to me. And I think that was something that I had to overcome throughout the fellowship. But as Althiri mentioned, this made the work that much more liberating for me personally, but that much more sustaining because I knew that this was bigger than myself and I needed to get over that. I needed to understand that this work was on behalf of my community members who who needed this representation at the legislative uh, space. Thank you. And I'm, I'm going to ask you later about any concrete tips you have for, for people overcoming that anxiety, which is totally understandable. But first, Thomas, if we could go to you with this question about your identities and how they shaped your advocacy experience and, and benefits and challenges that you recognized as an advocate of color. Yeah, there's a lot of benefits and challenges. I carry my identity on my sleeve, just coming from the South, um, and what that looks like being a Black male raised in the South. I 
grew up my entire life just like I grew up in what uh, my version of what a Mecca was like all black things. Like I didn't have to worry about like knowing what like a black business was. Like my dentist was black. Like that's just kind of how it was growing up. And it was great. And it was amazing. And then transitioning um, to a predominantly white institution in college was a, a real culture shock. And so going from being in the majority all the time, and that was just kind of my lived experience to then being in the minority for the first time really shaped, I think a lot of that challenge and kind of geared me up for this policy space when I didn't even think I was getting ready for that. But I think it really helped me always make sure to think about the people that didn't have the opportunity to be able to do that. And it's unfortunate that it ends up being like that, but I always think about how there's an obvious systemic issue when not everyone in my graduating class has the opportunity to at least even apply to a college or the fact that National Guard recruiters are constantly at my high school. Like that's an obvious systemic issue. And so that's something I really carried on my sleeve when I was thinking about my policy work. Anytime I thought about any of the things like digital equity, student engagement, I just really made sure to center the people that are most affected by this and centering them and, and bringing them into the conversation, really having this co-creation with them. Because I think we'll talk in circles a lot of times about community engagement and, and how to do it, but communities already know what they want. And that's something that I highlighted a lot in broadband issue brief is um, communities already know the needs that they have. They know the gaps in access. We are able to kind of fill those gaps and just kind of be the middle person to be able to supply, you know, and talk with these legislators and have these really concrete conversations about these really intricate words that we're using. But at the bare bones, I think everyone knows that we should live in an equitable, just society. And so that kind of framing and that thinking really I always kept in the back of my head when thinking about the policy work and thinking about having to meet with the Republican legislator's office, knowing that this is a really laborious process that I have to do. But I know that this is really important to the communities from my home and the people that look like me. Thank you. And I wish that we would all use the idea and term co-creation more. So important for you to highlight that. Thank you. Araceli, can you wrap us up on this one? Yes, I think everyone has done such a good job of like talking about it. I think the quickest way to describe being a woman of color who, you know, is also low income. I want to like snap when Altheria was talking, actually just everyone, (laughs) even like I didn't have a black dentist. I had a Latino dentist. So I relate Thomas. (laughs) I was also from an area very (laughs) homogenous. And so I think the easiest way to describe it is like high highs and low lows because you feel everything so personally and there's just a lot of tension all the time in the work that we're doing because as Thomas mentioned, I had to sit across the table from legislators who just last session were pushing for SB4 that just seeks to increase the presence of ICE in our communities. And here I am trying to get them to care about emergent bilingual students. And all I can think about is this person wants like my stepdad deported. He probably would deport me (laughs) if he could. And how do I deal with that tension as I'm asking him now and like sort of set the ego aside a little bit. Like Christina said, like, this is not about me. If I can get him to agree to something, I get that legislator to agree to something that's going to impact children all across Texas for the better, then I need to be able to put that aside and not like in a way that's ignoring it, which is something that I've appreciated about this fellowship. Like there has always been the acknowledgement 
and the validation that that is a violent experience. (laughs) Oftentimes, like it just really is. It's like an assault on our souls a lot of the time. And I don't mean that in a dramatic way. I just mean that to negate that or to pretend that it's not that is also harmful. And so I think that it's really important that we have each other to reflect on those things, to heal and bounce back from those things so that we feel the strength to keep pushing because that's the only way that that can get done. And I also just think like all the other things that don't necessarily fall into like the typical like Latina low income, first generation student thing also come up all the time in the way that we um, are talking about students. And I feel like I have some of the benefits. I, I noted a lot of the challenges, but some of the benefits I have built in test media testers, communications testers, bilingual translators. <laughs> I have it all right in the family. You know, my, yeah. <laughs> my test for if something is accessible or not is can I explain it to my mom? Does she get it? Did I put her to sleep? Was it concise enough with my dad? Can I translate this into Spanish? Am I ready for this bilingual town hall? Like, did he understand it when I told it to him in Spanish? Is it something my 21-year-old brother even cares about? And if it's not, how can I make it something that he cares about? Because he's not into this education policy world. Is this something that my, honestly, that my five, six-year-old brother (laughs) can understand and grasp? Because that's, and it's about him too, right? And so those are like all the benefits that I have built in. It's not just my own lived experience, but I get to pull on the wealth that is my family and my family friends and community members who I was able to actually pull into this work because it's about them. It's about us. And that is like, I think the most beautiful part of being an advocate of color who represents these communities as a part of our community is that we do have like all the built-in knowledge and power and testers and things that people outsource left and right because they don't have access to that. And I have it just every day when I go home. So yeah, a huge benefit. I should probably pay them, honestly. (laughs) Is your mom around to hear that? I love that. (laughs) I love that recognition of your assets, right? Because our communities are often thought of in such deficit terms and what we don't have and what we lack. I love that you highlighted that. No, we bring things to the table, too. We have resources, too. Well, I can, I guess, make a chef's kiss sound for this podcast, but I wish you could express chef's kissing. Um, (laughs) I love that too. I think that's incredible. Thank you. Christina, I'm going to ask you next. Araceli started to kind of get into this a little bit, and I love where she was going. And I'm curious for your thoughts on how would you like to see like the Texas policy advocacy landscape evolve as it relates to the influence of communities of color, or in other words, what keeps people like us out of the process and and what can we do to change that? Yeah. I mean, I initially thought the process was opaque and systematically kept communities of color out of the process. And that is true. Like I mentioned before, there was a lot of anxiety. And even I had experiences of imposter syndrome being in these spaces because they are designed to keep communities of color veiled from opportunities to engage. Their processes are are overtly opaque so that we are unable to organize and respond effectively. And so that's where I would like to see the advocacy landscape evolve is how can we as advocates 
increase or improve those opportunities for community members to get directly involved in these processes, right? And so a lot of what I was hoping to do during my fellowship, and I I know we all did something like this, was trying to push out as many community one-pagers or education tools as possible, right? Trying to make these really overly complicated processes or issues, how do they impact our communities and what should we know about them so that we know and are equipped to advocate against them or in support of at the legislatures. I I hope to see, and I feel like it's going in that direction, especially with IDRA as the leader in this space, is making this advocacy landscape more uh, friendly and welcoming to communities of color making space for communities to be the leaders in it. So not simply just having them input where we're able to kind of understand some of those solutions that they see and they see addressing the issues that are impacting them, but really be the leaders in crafting testimony and offering it in person at the legislature, connecting with the the legislators and policymakers and really voice their concerns to these people who have an obligation. They have an obligation to the community members they represent. And so, yeah, I would say just transparency about the process. Um, And as an advocate, I see that in two ways, right? Community or education tools that we've been producing, like one-pagers, but also making data more accessible. I think a lot of the times Data can um, be veiled and difficult to understand, but why? When we can really make it accessible for community members and help us to see patterns, help us to understand those patterns and how do we address usually the systemic inequities that are really underlying these patterns. So that's where I see advocates making the the strongest impact. Thank you. I love that. 100% agree. Araceli, what about you? What keeps people out of the process and how can we change that? I mean, just thinking on like one concrete example that I would pull from this experience, there we were, a group of about 15 people on the phone ready to make advocacy phone calls. And many of the women on the who were making these calls only spoke Spanish. And so they were telling me, I'm calling this, these offices and I'm getting staffers who, as soon as I start speaking in Spanish, will just hang up the phone on me without saying anything, or they will just pretend that they're listening to me and quickly hang up. They don't ask me any questions. I know that they're not understanding me. And while I understand that it's difficult to have bilingual people in every office, which people should think about that and how we can remedy that. <laughs> but the other part of it is that's an access issue. That's like, these are people who are also citizens. Like, My grandma was a citizen when she passed away who did not speak any English. And so it is her right to be able to participate in this democracy and to deny that with something that is so accessible, like people in immigration detention actually have access to language interpretation lines. And we can get that at the state capitol for people who are talking about things that are going to impact their children. Like, that's just unacceptable to me. (laughs) That's just my small soapbox moment. Especially, I mean, if we're talking about, I think we should have as much access as possible, but we're talking about Spanish, which is one of the most highly spoken languages here in Texas. So while I think that the capital should strive to provide as much access as possible, to me, that says we are actively seeking to deny access to a majority of the folks who speak this language. And so to me, those are like the kinds of things that are discouraging because these women were prepped. They knew what the legislature was about. They knew who they were calling about. They weren't just reading off a phone script. They had gone through and done the work with us to really, truly understand 
the issues that they were calling about and then to have them just be hung up on it's a discouraging experience for them and at the same time it's one that makes them even more adamant about pushing for their students ability to graduate from high school bilingual <laughs> it just brings in stark contrast what our world looks like when we don't do that kind of thing so i think that those are the kinds of things concretely that can change of course other things like making sure that people don't have to get that real civics education outside of school that we are actually teaching our students how to become involved and um, i often tell people that even i had to learn how a bill really becomes a law in texas because we all know only like the schoolhouse rock version of i'm just a bill sitting on the steps of capitol hill that's what we learn in school and it's not true they don't tell you about chubbing they don't tell you about horse trading They don't tell you about, you know, flagging bills and making them negative. They don't tell you that all these legislators' personal dramas have more to do with making that bill happen than whether the content of the bill is good or if it's going to impact uh, make positive changes for communities. And so those kinds of things are the things that we should be able to openly discuss starting in school for students. So, I think all of that would be really beneficial in helping communities of color and just marginalized communities in general of all kinds of identities have more access to making the laws. I hope that each of you is able to work the word chubbing into an episode of podcast. We have two down so far. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And that is not a small soapbox. That's a huge issue and I'm so glad that you pointed it out. It is a real denial of access in your right. It is unacceptable, particularly here in Texas but everywhere for sure. Thomas, I'm going to ask you for your response to this question. What keeps us out of the process and what are your ideas for changing that? Yeah, I'm going to continue along the lines of what everything Araceli said, like retweet everything she said, because it's insane. Like our, our government, we are conditioned to believe our government is confusing. Like that's like we've been socialized into the, that's like the norm. And that's crazy. I hate to be like fueled by anger, but I think that is where I see a lot of it come from is just a very confusing process of even how to register for testimony. Why is the capital in Austin? You know, let's even think about things like that. How do you get there? The ability that the Texas legislature only meets every two years um, and it's only at the very beginning part of the year. It's during springtime. People have to work. Even all these different things of people not being able to get towards the capital or be able to think about these these issues concretely it's all of course by design and i think that's one of the most frustrating parts to see and i think there's ways to obviously get more people in to be able to open up these access issues and i think we have to get creative even something that we worked on during the session was like virtual office hours and having folks come in and be able to learn how to do this public comment system that is even super hard and complicated and that we're still trying to figure out but still walking folks alongside that process i think it takes a lot of creative ways to be able to get people directly involved but i think we have to do it i think that is a lot of our job and a lot of our work is that we continue to do that because then the laws and things that we're working on and and doing the chubbing and process that's two now on the chubbing count <laughs> well now three apparently <laughs> um, but that's like all those things these high school games that we have to play are to make sure that people are directly involved and to make sure that people aren't harmed because a lot of these bills are harmful and it's unfortunate that we have to play high school games in order to you know save a bill or put an amendment onto something like that but it's it's life or death honestly 
and I, and I really don't say that lightly. I think the things that the legislators sometimes do is truly life or death. And so it's so important the work that we do. Yeah, I appreciate you calling us back to, you know, the serious consequences of this and the decisions that they're making. Altheria, the question to you, what keeps us out of the process? How do we, we change that? I think part of it, I think, is that people trust that the elected officials that they send to Austin is going to work on their behalf and to make decisions that are in their best interest. A lot of this, for me, has to do with getting people into office who really represent our communities, right? Who are really going to go, the Jarvis Johnsons of the world, who are going to go to Austin and stand on behalf of the people he represents, the communities he represents. So that to me is a starting point. Who are we sending down there to make decisions on our behalf? And another thing I think about is just how cumbersome the process can be in terms of wanting to be an advocate and wanting to share your thoughts on these different forms of legislation. I know that I went down to Austin, the process of waiting to testify. I don't know how many people have that luxury of taking a day off work and just sitting and sitting and sitting in hopes of being able to testify. And another thing, just recently, I sent written testimony to the State Affairs Committee on SB3 because I wasn't able to be there in person. And I had contacted the clerk and found out the process for doing so. And I did. But when I saw the minutes that were posted online, and the minutes have the people who testified in person for and against, the people who registered for or against, and then people who submitted written testimony. And my name wasn't on there. And, And that was a little jarring for me because I... I wanted to be on record. I wanted to be a part of the history that I, on behalf of my organization, submitted this written testimony. So I emailed the clerk and said, hey, I didn't see my name in your minutes as a person who submitted written testimony against this bill. Can you tell me why? And I didn't get a response. And I think that maybe the person who hasn't gone through this fellowship wouldn't even have that audaciousness to even contact an office to question them on things like that. And I think that's on purpose. I think it is meant to be intimidating to people of color. Even when you're walking around the Capitol, the way that it looked, the aesthetics suggest to you who belongs there and who doesn't belong there. When we're looking at the all these pictures on the wall, it tells us these are the people in power historically and just trust us to make decisions. And so that alone is a bit intimidating. So I think the work that IDRA does during the legislature is invaluable because we teach people how to offer testimony, right? We provide written statements and just have people to sign on to them in ways that can be easily sent to their elected officials. You know, it's just more work to be done. We need more people who are advocates like us who are then sharing it with our communities. One of the things that I feel challenged to do now that I've been a fellow is to pass this on. I've been thinking so much about how I can now help other people from backgrounds like mine who hold identities like the ones I hold, 
how can I help these people learn what I've learned so that they can be better equipped to be advocates? If I were a person who has a PhD in education, who still didn't know how to do this, imagine the person who doesn't, right? So it's up to us. It's up to everyone to make this process, to make the resources available to people who are impacted by these decisions. I'm going to pick up one of your last points and throw it to Christina for our final question for this episode. Altheria was mentioning, you know, even someone who has a lot of knowledge about education still finds this process very intimidating because it is not clear often for people and is intentionally unclear. So going kind of with that in mind, and Christina, going back to something that you mentioned, I would love for you to talk about what sustains your work, including any practical tips you might have for other people to sort of overcome this advocacy anxiety and to keep going forward in this space you know, personally, and I think just in terms of like what my background really is as a scholar, like I constantly am plagued with this imposter syndrome of, of, I don't know what I'm talking about. So who am I to be a voice on behalf of my community? But it's really important to recognize that there is no one perfect person or one perfect representative of your community. You are your community and you have every right to be in that space and your unique experience your unique cultural or ethnic identity are vital and really important to the whole process. And so that is what keeps me going is knowing that, you know, who's to say, who's to say that I'm not allowed in that space, right? It's our right. It's, I think what Altheria was mentioning about the whole community accountability piece is just that is encouraging each other to continue striving for more, demanding more from our elected officials. And I think in terms of what keeps me sustained personally, it's definitely my community members, knowing I can lean on, you know, you fellows here, um, Morgan, you, our team, it's knowing that we're all in this together and we're the only place to go is up and to continue fighting for our communities is what sustains me. Um, It's what keeps me up at night, but it's what it sustains me because I know that it's a larger issue than me. These are larger issues than what, um, you know, can affect me personally. And so that is something that's always in the back of my head is, is that this work is not for me necessarily every day. It's for my larger community. It's for my larger family. I love that. Thank you so much. Thomas, same question for you. What, what sustains you? And do you have any practical tips for people who might have advocacy anxiety and how they can overcome that? Yeah, no, I, I also deal a lot with and Christina have talked about this at length. And I think it's it's great that we were able to work together so much better session and just through this fellowship is I also struggle a lot with imposter syndrome and constantly telling myself, like, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I should be in this space. Maybe we should have someone else take this role on. I think the most important thing to realize about social change and just any type of social changes is everyone has their various different roles. So there's going to be people who do research. There's going to be people on the loudspeakers. There's going to be people that need help passing out waters and things like that. But every single one of those people are essential to the the movement um, and to the larger scale thing that we have to be a part of. And so what I've learned is to really just kind of find my fit and kind of craft my own path of what I see uh, will be best fit how I am. Also noticing that it is going to be uncomfortable, but I think that is something that we should lean into, or at least personally, I should lean into and really think about that. It's sometimes okay to be feeling things of discomfort or feeling of discomfort, knowing that 
the people you represent could be feeling discomfort in a lot of other ways and, and making sure that it's really important that we are centering them. And so if I have to be a little uncomfortable in the legislator's office with like air conditioning and I'm able to walk around the Capitol in a suit and everything, I'm sure I will be fine compared to, you know, things like the power grid and like the failure in that, something that hasn't still been officially fixed yet. And so it's it's moments like that where I try to remember how important this work is and and thinking about sustaining it. I it's very familial to me as well. Like my mom, I, I talk about her a lot. She's she's my, my hero, my best friend in a lot of ways. I think about seeing my family wall of all of the folks getting degrees and my mom coming from the product of having to be busted into school during segregation. Like I think it's a, a really touching and emotional thing that how am I even able to be at this point where I'm able to advocate on behalf of people? And I've gotten to a role where it looks very different. The fight is still there, of course, but we're now in a place where we're able to meet one-on-one with the legislator where that would not be taken into consideration 30 years ago, which is pretty good stuff. Yeah, I, I think that's huge perspective from a lot of different positions. Araceli, what about you? So much like Thomas, all of the fellows, and honestly, everyone at IDRA, anyone who's ever met me knows that I'm always going to give my mom a shout out because... (laughs) Well-deserved. So well-deserved. She'll listen to this podcast one day. She'll be mad if there's no shout out. (laughs) Um, But she honestly always knows exactly the right way to help me overcome whatever sorts of emotions I'm feeling. She knows when to be soft and caring and just allowing me to feel sad about certain things that are going on in my job. But she also knows when to tell me, like Thomas said, like, while I understand that this is really sad or upsetting or difficult, this is not just about you. So you need to kind of like be able to move beyond that initial feeling to strategize and think about what are we doing next? Because like Thomas said, people's lives depend on it. And like, though we're talking about education equity issues and not necessarily, you know, we're not talking about like criminal justice reform or things like that. We know that many of the other things that impact people begin in the classroom. And that's true for many people, even in my own family. So those are the kinds of things that I think about when I think about what sustains my work, family, community, practical tips. I knit (laughs) hobbies now. I realized that people would ask me questions like, oh, what do you do for fun? Or what are your hobbies? And I had no answers. And that was like something classic type A behavior. I was like, I need to seek out a hobby. And then I just chose the hardest hobby. (laughs) (laughs) But it has been just uh, really good to learn a new skill. And it exercises in being nice to yourself when you make mistakes. It's exercises in, in humility and like learning a new skill. I have plants. I listen to the playlist on Spotify called Workout Playlist for Hot Girls sometimes to hype myself up before I need to do something where I'm not going to have a good time, like testifying against SB3. I listen to things that make me feel good and powerful. And I think those are like practical tips. I will say the power stance. I don't know if y'all have heard about this. Yes. Doing a power stance before public speaking really helps. It's where you sort of like stand with your chest out, head up, chin up, hands on your hips, and just like take up the space. Just like as women of color, we are taught that that's not our space to take up. And like physically standing in it 
is helpful. You will be surprised. It sounds like it doesn't make a difference, but it does. And also just reminding myself that we really, we are that girl. Like <laughs> we know what we're talking about. We have not just the personal uh, and professional experience to prove it, but we're also all scholars. And just reminding myself after I've heard these legislators unable to even say what their bill is about on the floor, <laughs> on the House floor, not having not ever appeared to have read their own bill. And that is a reminder of just what an expert all of my colleagues are and, and what we're talking about. And that's always helpful to me. I think tips for overcoming anxiety is like feeling prepared. And that makes me feel prepared. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, such rich tips. And thank you for uh, avoiding saying the B word several times, because uh, I know you wanted to. Coming. <laughs> I know your playlist. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, and there's science behind power stances. It's a thing. Yeah. Altheria, take us out. Give us the wisdom. I think that... I am sustained by the legacy I've inherited. Like I'm not doing anything that is new or revolutionary in any way. Black women have always been on the forefront of activism in various spheres. So I think about Sojourner Truth. I think about Phyllis Wheatley. I think about Harriet Tubman. I think about Lorraine Hansberry. Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, and knowing that I've inherited the legacy of women who endured more than I can even imagine propels me. Whenever I have to do something big, like testify, I think about the fact that um, when Phyllis Wheatley was enslaved and writing poetry, And a tribunal of all white men called her up to see if she was really writing these poems because it was foreign for them to think of an enslaved Black woman as being capable of writing the beautiful poetry that she wrote. And I think of her standing before this tribunal of all white men reciting her poetry to them. And I think I can go in here and testify in front of these mostly mediocre white men. I can do this work. They've laid the groundwork for me to do it. So that's what propels me, that I get my inspiration from knowing that Black women before me, I'm standing on their shoulders. Altheria, chills. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, me too. One of my favorite moments with you, Altheria, is when you visited the Capitol for the first time and we got to go look at Barbara Jordan and talk about this very thing. You'll mess me up talking about Barbara Jordan, seriously. (laughs) She is one of those, right? Like, she made it possible for us to do what we're doing. And in some ways, we owe it to her to do this work so that her work won't be in vain. I am so proud that they were my colleagues. They've made me so much better. You say that, Alkaria, and I just like, that's exactly how I feel about you. When you were talking about being like the auntie of the group, I feel like in some ways, like, yes. And in other ways, like, even better. 
<laughs> I can't tell my tias that I listen to the hot girl playlist. Like they're, <laughs> they're not here for that. It's just all the best, the best parts of having someone mentor me who's like really been through it. My mom always used to tell me like all through high school, if you ever have a problem, don't just ask your friends about it. Like ask someone who's older than you. It doesn't have to be me. It can be anyone, just someone who's older than you. Yeah. And I have often listened to that advice and it's gone well. And the times when I don't listen to that advice, it has gone not as well. <laughs> and so I'm just so grateful to have you. And I've learned so many things from you from like the very beginning to learning how mm. to say no and like doing it in such an eloquent way where people are like thanking you for saying no. <laughs> how do I, that's Jedi level. Like you <laughs> people saying thank you to you when you say, respectfully I'm declining and, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> and I love that I want to reach that level one day but yeah. it's so nice to have you just be able to model that for me and and yeah, yeah. well Amazing. you know I feel like when I was hearing you talk that I think it's important for your mom to know that she hasn't only mothered you she's mothered us through you <sighs> like <I'm> <laughs> Yeah, she really has because of things that she's taught you that you've passed on to us. I get chills even thinking about it. Like she's probably my age and she has still passed on these things to me through you. And that's what legacy does, right? That's what legacy does. Thank you for that. What a perfect end to this episode. Thanks for listening to episode two of the series check out episode three next. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.